1: By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones.
2: Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, your host, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm talking with Terry Daniel. Terry's a hospice and a hospital-trained chaplain and certified thanatologist who helps dying and grieving people discover a more spiritually spacious understanding of death and beyond. Great word there. Her unique perspective helps the dying and the living find meaning and healing through meditative and ritual practices that open a conduit to other dimensions. Her unique form of radical mysticism incorporates elements of Buddhism, shamanism, ancient pagan practices, Gnostic Christianity, and other spiritual traditions to break down limiting beliefs about forgiveness, divine judgment, and negative experience. Terry's the author of three books on death and the afterlife, A Swan in Heaven, Conversations Between Two Worlds, Embracing Death, A New Look at Grief, Gratitude in God, and Turning the Corner on Grief Street, How Trauma and Loss Can Transform Us. She's also the founder and president of the Afterlife Education Foundation and producer of the annual Afterlife Awareness Conference that's coming up this May, 6th one, I believe. Welcome, Terry. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's good to be on your show. Good to have you. Uh, mostly today we're talking about your most recent book, Turning the Corner on Grief Street, and about your conference, of course. Um, what stands out about the book for me most, most primarily is um, how your interest in work on the afterlife uh, does not result In uh, a kind of what can happen sometimes, a a sense we shouldn't feel bad uh, when we grieve. You seem to really balance those two. And I want to, I wonder if you could talk about how they intersect for you. the, The idea of life continues after this life and we also do need to grieve.
3: That is a really good question, and um, thank you for noticing that about my work. I am very involved in the afterlife and a big believer in the idea that, our, that we don't die and that we continue to exist in another dimension, and I do believe that it does help with grief, but I would never say that it removes grief in any way at all, mm-hmm. but what it does... And I've been thinking about this a lot lately, actually, is it separates your response to loss into two compartments. One is the experience of the dead person. And we're going to assume that when we're talking about l- grief in this conversation, we're only talking about someone who has died. Well, let's leave divorce and other kind of loss right. out of it for the moment. Um, So there's two perspectives. There's the perspective of the dead person, and then there's the perspective of the grieving person. And if you can separate those two, you can begin to see that your sadness is just yours. It's just about you. And that you're not really sad for the person who's died because you've hopefully educated yourself somewhat about what happens when we die and what happens after we die. And you can allow that person to follow their path even if it's not the path you wanted them to have. Mm. See what I'm saying? So, I, mean, I do. Know, we, we never want the people we love to die. Nobody wants that. You don't want your dog to die or your husband or your child. Of course not. We want people to be where we want them to be and do what we want them to do. So if you can separate those two things, you can start to let go of your grasp of, you know... Being angry, really, that the person didn't do what you wanted. That's really what it comes down to when you start separating it like that.
2: One thing I was thinking about a lot as I was reading your book is uh, something quite personal to me, which is that uh, my partner who died, we had many different sorts of relationships in the time that we knew each other, which was quite a long time. I met her when I was 16. She died when I was 42, uh, friends at times, lovers at times, uh, spiritual partners at times, you know, all these different relationships. And that really the way I experienced grief was that I had to, uh, transform that relationship to a very different format. Uh, just the way at one point we had broken up, that was a huge transformation, but didn't break our connection. <laughs> You know, and then we, we were back together later in life. Uh, I, I sort of think of it that way. Is that a good sort of uh, container for what you're talking about? Well, yeah, you could think of it that way. You know, we hope that we have
3: physical and uh, spiritual relationships with our loved ones. And so when they die, the physical one absolutely stops. And hopefully we have enough of a spiritual one that we can continue that because that is exactly what happens. The relationship doesn't end. It just changes form. It changes from physical form to metaphysical form or to spiritual form. Radically, (laughs) right? Radically. Yes. (laughs) But, you know, if you just... And if you realize that the person is still somewhere in the universe and that you can still interact with them in a variety of ways, not it doesn't have to be the blatant you know, Hollywood movie version of after-death communication where you see them standing in front of you and they're like in that movie Ghost where he's sitting at the potter wheel with her. You know, it isn't like that for most people. And I think we have expectations of it being like that. But if we can study the afterlife and study spirituality to the point of we realize that there are just so many different dimensions on which we are all existing simultaneously so we can always sense the presence of people in the other dimensions in a lot of different ways it doesn't have to look a certain way
2: mm. you know the and section I, the section from your introduction uh is is right on point with what we're talking about i i i think could you read that uh, little section that's uh, it starts. It occurred to me today that some bereaved individuals—oh, that one. Okay, I didn't know what yeah. I was going to
3: read it. Hold on, I'm going to have to walk over here and find the book. Hang on a Would second. You, should I read it
2: instead? <laughs> sure. Yeah, you go ahead and okay. read it. Okay. It occurred to me today that some bereaved individuals are so attached to their pain that they can't open up to other ways of perceiving their losses. They are immobilized at a fixed location on Grief Street, even though there are fascinating new neighborhoods of consciousness, new languages, and new vantage points all around them. They could peek around the corner and see what's on the next block, ride an elevator to the top of a skyscraper and see the view from the roof or go down into a subway station to look at what's hidden below in the subconscious, but instead... They feel paralyzed and unable to move beyond anger, guilt, blame, and victimhood. Grief gives us the opportunity to look into these previously untapped corners of our psyches. It's the hidden gift of grief, the extraordinary opportunity for growth that only a traumatic event can trigger. These events don't happen for no reason. They're not random, and they are certainly not punishments from a judgmental God. They are gifts of growth if we are awake enough to see them that way. Uh one yeah. thing I one thing I think about when I read that you know I know what your experience what experience in your life uh brought you to this work which was the death at 16 of your son. And so as I was reading I was extremely curious kind of what what uh happened for you before you turned that corner what and what brought the turn Mm-hmm. It's a good question. Um, well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact
3: that I was always metaphysically minded since I was 12, and I was not brought up in a rigid belief system about, you know, that kind of theology where there's a God in the sky who decides what happens to us, and some of it is punitive. I didn't have any of that in my thinking at all and I feel very lucky about that. Plus I was always spiritual. I always believed in reincarnation and other dimensions and all of this. So when I found out that my son had this life-threatening illness and was going to die, um, obviously I was, you know, horrified and shocked and you know, devastated in all of the usual responses, but there was another part of myself that knew something else and it was because of my spiritual outlook that i thought okay he and i are two souls journeying through this incarnation together we're part of something much bigger than just our little identities and our little family where he's the son and i'm the mom and everything is supposed to be a certain way and he's supposed to grow up and go to college and get married we're part of something much bigger than this and so i was able to look to sort of step back and look at that view from space. I wasn't any less sad or disappointed, but I was able to work with the reality that I had in front of me. And when I learned that there was no cure for this disease, um, I thought, well, let's see, what can I do? I can take him and travel all around the world and go to faith healers in Brazil and mystic healers in China and try to stop this from happening Or I could just roll with the punches and realize that his soul is a viable, freestanding entity of its own. And it obviously has a plan. And who am I to stop it and interrupt it? Now, that doesn't mean that if he had a different kind of disease, if he had leukemia or something, that I wouldn't do every intervention possible, of course I would. But I knew in this situation that I just needed to listen to a higher voice Mm. than the voice that said, but wait, I had my life planned to be a certain way and I refused to let it be a different way. I was just able to let it go. And I guess it's because of my spiritual view throughout my life.
2: So for you, you know, there's this uh this uh field of study post-traumatic growth, maybe you have have encountered it. Uh it it's had a lot of meaning to me. Um and one of the uh, aspects that they are finding change in people is their spirituality. Uh some people change their spiritual outlook totally. That would that would uh apply to me. My mm-hmm. spiritual outlook changed radically uh, during um, during my wife's illness and death and, and in my own grief. But some people, it's a deepening. So you had the you had the perspective, and I'm guessing it it maybe deepened your understanding of your own spiritual uh, uh, viewpoint. To go through that, would that be fair to say? Yes, exactly. And in
3: fact, people around me, people who knew me at the time he was diagnosed, would ask me this exact question. They would say, so now that you're facing this, does this change your views? Does this make you like want to become a Christian and go to church or, you know, pray to Jesus to heal your son? Or what does this do? And I said, you know what, it it just makes me even more convinced that what I have sensed, to be true all my life is true. I mean, I read the Tibetan Book of the Dead when I was 19. Mm. And I remember being 19 years old and reading that and saying, oh my God, this makes sense. This makes more sense than anything I've ever heard about what we are, us humans, as spirits, than anything. And I I latched onto that and never let go. And uh, it was so helpful to me when looking at my son's situation, Because I understood the whole thing about, um, you know, choosing your parents and creating a blueprint for what your soul wants to do in this incarnation. So I feel very lucky that I had some references that I could use. And that's a big part of my teaching now As I try to teach people what some of those other cultural references might be
2: beyond what we have just in this culture. There's a section of your book where you where you talk about uh, trauma like this, uh big traumatic experiences as a crisis of faith for a lot of people, which of course, uh, I've seen plenty of that and but it seems to me it's uh more of a crisis if your view is uh, God if I pray and go to church and do all these things, nothing bad will happen to me. And then when bad things do happen, because this is life after all, um, mm-hmm. you can't maintain that. Wait a minute. Did, and what I've seen many times is people think, oh, I must have done something wrong. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yes. So so in that sense, uh, someone in that circumstance, their faith really doesn't uphold them at that moment particularly.
3: Would you agree? Yes. And then they have a choice. And their choice is to relinquish that faith and seek something that does make sense or cling desperately to that faith, in which case they end up internalizing it as punishment. And I've seen so many people say things like that. You know, um, one woman that I met at a conference had lost four children in four separate unrelated events over a 25-year period, all four of her kids. Uh. And she said these words to me. She said, I always thought that if I was a good person and pleased God, that things like this wouldn't happen to me. So I must have failed. You know, I keep looking through my life and saying, what did I do wrong? Where did I slip up? Where did I, you know, not go to church that one Sunday or eat meat on Friday Or, or whatever it was she thought she had to do to, quote, please God, unquote, um, because it didn't work out the way she thought it was supposed to, it turned in on her and she felt that she had failed to be virtuous and it's just and that's just an endless cycle of depression.
2: Well the thing depression. is I can't uh imagine I had a very significant loss, not a death loss, but a, a very crushing loss before my wife died. And uh it it uh unearthed a mountain of self criticism. Mm.
3: Uh
2: but what happened a couple years into that is I broke through it. And I can't imagine really having faced my wife's death with that kind of load on my heart. Mm, uh, good point. Uh, yeah. It's it's uh and I know that a lot of people do, especially I had so much time to prepare. Uh it makes a difference. Um I know that people do go into loss with a mountain of um, what's wrong with me inside. And uh, that just seems, well, I know from firsthand, so painful. Well, we go into everything with that, don't we? You know, I was just thinking about it today. I went for my
3: morning hike with a neighbor, and she said, oh, I feel so good about myself today because I went for this walk this morning. And I started thinking about that, and I thought, so... If you don't feel good about yourself, if you don't go for the walk, then it's like your natural state is guilt. I know, cause I do that all the time, you know, it's like <laughs> I always feel guilty, like I'm not doing, I'm not exercising enough as much as I should, or I, oh, I ate a piece of bread today, you know, I'm gonna feel guilty for a week for that. And then I'll go do something like, go do a really big workout, and then I feel better and my guilt is relieved. And so it's interesting, it's not like, we do things that make us feel better. It's like we do things that take us out of our natural state of guilt, which is, which is very sadly where a lot of people live in our culture. Uh, and,
2: of course, we've been, we've been trained that way, I yes. think. Uh, are we good or are we bad? Are we uh, productive or are we unproductive? All those kinds of messages. But what I say to my clients is that's paying double. Because you're already paying whatever the price is of not having taken the walk, and then yes. you pay, pay with guilt as well. <laughs> so, right,
3: because guilt is our default position. So that's just like intrinsic, right? It's always, it's always there. <laughs> always it's the there under the surface.
2: <laughs> <place>. <laughs> <laughs> Have you met people for whom that's, you know, I, I think that used to be 100% true of me younger, less true now. Uh, it takes boy, it takes a lot to push me there now, of course it 's in there somewhere, but have you met people that don 't really have that default? Uh, probably
3: i don't that 's a really great question i don 't know I mean, I would think probably not very many or i I would say that I know a lot of people who are working really hard not to have that default. Uh-huh. And certainly, I you know I most of the people that I know and work with don't have that default from a spiritual perspective because we right all it's overcome it's more the daily living thing.
2: kind of thing, yeah yeah. So when we get back from the break, I would like to talk about uh, mediumship. Uh, you know, communicating with people who have died and how you intersect that with grief. I think that's very fascinating, and I'd like to spend some time with that when we come back. Okay, perfect. All right. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America, to like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. And to find Terry Daniel, you can go to afterlifeconference.com
1: Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
0: We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up?
1: We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, Blackberry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, Blackberry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones.
2: Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Terry Daniel, the author of three books on grief, and most recently, Turning the Corner on Grief Street. Uh, and, and Terry, you talk pretty extensively uh, in the book about um, having contact uh, beyond death, mediumship. Um, I had a recent guest, I don't know if you've heard of the book, After This, by Claire Bidwell-Smith. No. Uh, Oh, it's a beautiful book. Um, She's a therapist, grief counselor. Both of her parents uh, died of cancer. They were both um, diagnosed when she was 14. And they died when she was uh, 18 and 25, I believe. And the book is about, uh, she's now in her mid-30s. She kept having the persistent question in her mind, where did they go? And so she spent some years, um, investigating that question and went to quite a few, um, afterlife communicators, mediums. And it's a, it's a beautiful book. Um, she's quite a wonderful author. Uh, love that's the title. Her, yeah. That, that's her second book. The first was Rules of Inheritance, uh, which is supposed to become a movie one of these days. But in any case, um, you know that got me thinking about us kind of rationally trained folks uh like i was for sure it interestingly i was raised by a minister i believe you know i think he believed in an afterlife for sure um my mother even more than him my my dad was sort of a an agnostic in a lot of ways um but you know the kinds of things like mediumship and such um they were very rationalistically based and so they didn't weren't too open to that kind of thing. Um but I really wanted to hear you talk about how you connect that with grief, how it helps, maybe how it doesn't help if sometimes it doesn't help mm-hmm. on, and just hear your viewpoint on it.
3: Well, mediumship is a very big part of, of course, of my Afterlife Conference, which I've been producing going on six years now. And at the conference, we have a lot of tools and a lot of resources. We have grief counselors. We have shamans who do rituals. We have scientists who report on research. Um... We have uh, authors who talk about their own experiences, teachers, all kinds of people, and we have mediums, and we have excellent mediums. We screen them very carefully. We have them do auditions for our board members to make sure that they are true evidential mediums, and the reason we have them is because that is part of the process. If you're going to study the afterlife, grief is certainly part of it, the process of dying is part of it, and interdimensional communication is part of it, and that's why the mediums are there. What I've learned from five years of producing this conference and watching these mediums work and watching the people in the audience receive these messages is that mediumship is absolutely vital for showing you that your loved one still exists. A good medium will bring messages with details that, No one else would know. So I'll give you a couple examples. So one year, Suzanne Northrup was doing audience readings from the stage, and she said, oh, over here in this corner of the room back there, I see a white horse and a black horse galloping around the back of the room. Do these horses belong to anybody sitting over there on that right-hand side of the room? And sure enough, somebody gets up sobbing, Because her barn had caught fire, and her black horse and her white horse had died in the barn fire. Mm. So that is evidential mediumship. She couldn't have made that up. And it was so comforting to that woman to know that the horses were there, that their spirit was with her, that they're romping happily somewhere, and that they're not in pain, and they're not suffering, and that life goes on for us here on Earth and for them in their dimension. So this is what mediumship is for, is to show us that they hear us, they feel us, they're connected to us. What mediumship is not for is for healing our grief. And uh, the downside of all this is I've seen many bereaved people who keep going to one medium after another over and over again And getting the same messages from their loved one, good messages, you know, evidential messages, and, you know, I love you and I'm safe and all is well, and whatever, and they're still suffering. Well, yeah, of course they're still suffering. They're grieving. And a mediumship reading cannot take that away from you. And I heard somebody recently say very flippantly, uh, oh, yeah, mediums are the new grief counselors. And I just wanted to scream, you Mm. know, mediums are first of all, mediums aren't new. They've been around forever. (laughs) And they're not grief counselors. Now, some mediums actually are grief counselors. My friend Austin Wells, who's an excellent medium who comes to our conference all the time, actually is trained as a grief counselor. And so she can do both things. She can bring in the messages and she can help you process your grief journey. But you know, I say to people, "Do not expect a medium to take your pain away that's not what they do that's your job
2: and that's that's a little bit uh more uh about what I was saying at the beginning that you're you're putting those two things together, which I find quite refreshing because there's it's very frequent that um, you know will will uh, People will offer evidence of afterlife as a way to try to shut up grief, in a sense, uh, to say, it's okay. You know, you don't need to be upset. They're still alive, <laughs> which misses the point, doesn't it?
3: Well, I wish that all mediums would get some training in grief counseling because a lot of mediums do say that, you know, I mean, I don't know if they come right out and say it so blatantly, but they do kind of give the impression like, okay, well, now that you know that your person gave you these messages is still alive, you should feel better. And, and I think people do feel better up to a point, but they still have to go home to the empty house.
1: And For figure sure. out
3: how their life is going to be without that person and let go of their beliefs and assumptions about how life is supposed to work. They still have a lot of work to do. And so that's where um, the next step in grief healing, in my opinion, comes in. And that's what my conscious grieving workshop is. It's called uh, Grief as a Mystical Journey. And it's like, okay, so let's say you've done all this. You've had a loss. You've gone to a medium. You've heard from your beloved person. You've let go of some of your limiting religious beliefs. You've allowed your life to, you know, shake down and be reconstructed. But you're still in pain. You still cry every day. You're still, you know, you're Mm -hmm. getting stomach aches and you're just not really at peace. So what do you do? Well, you know, some people will go to grief counselors, but I don't think traditional grief counseling really takes you much past, I don't think it even takes you anywhere near that point. It's an excellent resource for talking and feeling heard and seen, which is important. And grief groups are great for finding community and sharing stories, which is important. But there's another level that we have to go to. There's inner work that we don't do in this culture. And what happens with a lot of grief people when they don't do this inner work, which I'll describe in a minute, is they stay focused on the external event rather than doing the inner work. The external event is somebody died and I'm sad. And that becomes their story. And that's, if you remember in my book, the people, the way they reacted to my turning the corner on grief street thing is they were just very upset because... They were all about the event. And so where I've evolved that to now is the use of body work and ceremony and ritual and different kinds of therapies. We do a little art therapy where we are using symbolism to actually move that pain through our body. So in the grief workshop, which is normally a full day, um, we, we do symbolic actions to represent our grief. So in one stage, we draw a picture of our grief experience of whatever it looks like to us. And we put that picture on a table, which is like an altar. And then in a later part of the uh, event, we have a bowl of water and rose petals and we sort of pray or talk or whisper into the rose petals our pain and the stuff that we want to release and we put it in the bowl of water. And then we take our picture of our grief experience. And we take the bowl of water with the rose petals and we go outside and we pour the water and the rose petals onto the earth. And we take the picture that we drew of our grief and we light it on fire and burn it. So that with the smoke and the heat from the burning, our pain rises up out of our earthly place, our body, our position on earth into a higher place. So it's all symbolism. But I think without doing symbolic gestures like that, we don't really fully heal; it just stays inside us. One and thing think- I've
2: noticed, of course, as a grief counselor, is that if if a person finds some openness to themselves, you know, it's great to go and have some uh, rituals, as you're describing, suggested because many people are uh, a little inhibited when it comes to uh, when it comes to ritual. Period. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um But I do find when people are a little more open, they magically come up with very beautiful uh, ritual ways of describing and working with their grief. They um, do. That's so true. When they're open, the rituals come to them. The come to them. Think, yeah,
3: and I think our dead people help us create those rituals. They tell us what they want. Well, it certainly
2: felt to me in deep grief like that was true. There was Uh just a kind of knowing about what would help me, and it wasn't the things that helped me in everyday life. For instance, I'm a a pretty terrible gardener, but I had to put my hands in the dirt every day the first year after my wife died. I just had to. You know, there was no choice. Um, I, I'm looking at this little passage uh, from your book, and it seems connected with what we're talking about. Grief work is most effective when it strives to find meaning in the loss. And there's an enormous body of academic research that supports the idea that finding meaning creates a healthier adjustment. When the loss can be viewed with an open heart, with tenderness rather than pain, it can be seen as simply a change in the relationship with the lost person, rather than the complete and total disappearance of the relationship. It's a redefinition of attachment rather than complete detachment. The relationship does not disappear, it just changes form. Learning to see death and loss this way requires a new understanding of forgiveness, a belief in the innate divinity of all things, the holiness of every encounter, a purpose to every experience, and a view of ourselves as more than just our physical bodies and the personal dramas that play out in each incarnation. For many people, this requires a complete theological overhaul, might be an understatement um <laughs> but um you know this this uh obviously this whole radio show is a, is really we could say it's completely about making meaning out of loss uh yeah I, i'm saying transformation through loss same difference um and and that is really the only way forward don't you think to find some way to make uh, our experiences meaningful to us. Um, Well, this is why we humans
3: created religion, isn't it? You know, to make our experiences meaningful for us. If you think about, you know, the first primitive people on Earth who were sitting outside under the stars and wondering, what are those white twinkly things up in the air? You know, and then, you know, or why did a a lion come and eat the baby? Or why was there an earthquake? Or why can't we find any food? And so we created religion out of the need to explain things and, and spirituality. So in grief, we're kind of doing the same thing. We're just kind of creating a new religion, a new spiritual understanding. I mean, that's kind of what meaning is. It's, you know, looking for an explanation of why things are the way they are that is beyond just what we can see in the physical world. And, you know, there I think you and I talked about this once before. Um, the concept, the term grief work is actually an old one, and it was coined by Freud. Freud wrote a lot about grief work, and his theory, this is what he believed, is that, To heal from grief, you had to gradually and slowly and painfully pull yourself away from that person to remove all the feelings of connection that you have to that person in your psyche until you have detached, until you have, until you're like almost indifferent where there isn't any feeling left, and that was kind of what he, what was going for, and So in talking about all this new research about post-traumatic growth and meaning making, that all kind of started in the 1960s and threw Freud's approach on its ear and they said, wait a minute, you don't have to cut off your feelings, you don't have to make yourself numb and
2: completely detached, you have to just revision the attachment you know, I, I want to, yeah. um, that is so important. I want to come back to it after the break uh, because you're generating a lot of thought about what is shifting right now that we are actually uh, uh, making more room for feeling states in general. That uh, seems like part of a larger, uh, a larger shift that is trying to happen. Um, So let's talk about that when we get back. Uh, Listeners, you can go to my website, weatherandgrief.com. You can go to the page at Voice America, Good Grief. And you can find Terry Daniel at afterlifeconference.com. Be back soon.
3: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel.
3: Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief.
2: Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Terry Daniel, the organizer of the Afterlife Awareness Conference, which takes place in St. Louis, May 12th to 15th, 2016 this year, and the author of three books on grief. She came to her work after the death of her 16-year-old son, and um, uh, you know, my the people in my world uh, know me as an optimist, and I think that's very true. I think I am an optimist, and. I'm usually pretty realistic about it. I feel as if there's uh, just a little bit more room happening for things like conversation about loss, um, uh, less linear ways of thinking, um, more more spiritual uh, awareness in the non judgmental uh, form. And I wondered if you, you think that as well, um, or whether it's just that I'm more exposed than I was. I think we're all more exposed because of the Internet. Ah. So uh, what I
3: say about that is there's no shift happening now that hasn't already happened a million times in human history. Um, if, you know, if you look at the history of how people understood death, um, people were a lot more open about it in the past. This is a recent development. People expressed their, and I'm talking about in Western culture, people expressed their emotions, um, m- freely, they accepted death, you know, the, the standard way of doing death in say this, you know, 17th century is you'd say, oh, you know, I'm sick, I feel like my time has come, call the priest, call the family, and you'd go get in your bed and say goodbye to everybody and die. And it was just that normal. People grieved and people cried, and, but they had rituals that we don't have now. They buried the person on their own property, so they stayed close to them. The um, handling of death was not in the hands of doctors or religious leaders. So we were actually m- more open than we are now.
2: Yes, I'm um, talking I'm talking uh, you know, the scientific era, era we've been in for quite some time. Uh it feels as if as if perhaps we're starting to come out of that. Do you think so?
3: Come out of the scientific era? But, I
2: think the, that's, the era I think, of of science uh to the exclusion of <clears throat> less linear ways of looking at things.
3: I think it's just cyclical. You know, uh-huh. I think I think that what is happening is we're more exposed to less linear ways of looking at things. I think the Internet is the most miraculous thing that's ever happened to humanity. And because of it, we have a, live in a multicultural world, so we can see all these different... I mean, anybody can publish a book. Anybody can have a blog. Anybody can post Hi. something on Facebook. So you can see everybody's experience. Nothing is hidden anymore, so we're exposed to so many different ways of looking at things. Now, this is a huge shift for the world, but if you look back over history, because we have to look at it in context, you know, it was a similar thing to what happened when the printing press was invented, but just smaller. So now we have a printing press, and people can actually read books. That that changed humanity tremendously. Television Mm. changed humanity. So we're just, it's the same change that's always been in progress, but we've just taken a huge boost because of mass media.
2: Yeah, and um, I mean, I suppose with every advancement, things do go and tend to go in in, uh, two directions. There's also more we're exposed to that's painful, you know, that's, not in that direction i suppose i just pay a lot more attention to well you get kind to of- choose right
3: <laughs> that's right. the thing you get to choose and that's that's what's so wonderful about it where you know i mean pick some t- pick you know let's go back to 1952 let's say you know like how much choice did we have about what we could think we were you know you went to a priest for marriage counseling think about it <laughs> yeah <laughs> And, you know, we didn't have a lot of information. I once, um, in a medical library, came across an old medical book, not for doctors, but, like, you know how you used to have, like, a medical book in your house where you'd go when you were a yeah. kid? Like, like a medical P- encyclopedia. P- D-
2: something, yeah. <laughs> yes. And
3: I looked, I found one of these from the 1950s, and the word vagina wasn't even in it. Mm. There were, actually, there was a picture, there was a description of the birth process and a little diagram of a baby in the womb, and they never used the word vagina in this book, and never talked about any, any uh, female illnesses, never, you know, like vaginal infections and things like that. They just completely ignored it in this med- you know, medical encyclopedia from 1950, so... We didn't have a choice. I mean, we couldn't even educate ourselves about our own health back then.
2: That's very now funny because you're you're making re- me remember that when I was very little, probably six, I got in terrible trouble because I told um, one of the neighbor kids how babies were born. And th- her parents came over to my parents and just read them the complete riot act. So that's, <laughs> an, that's an example of what you're talking about. Yeah, and that's a perfectly normal thing for a six-year-old to do. If you know it, yeah. Yeah,
3: you know, hopefully by six you do.
2: (laughs) Well, that child did not, apparently. There were storks going on in that that home, I guess.
3: Oh, my goodness gracious. And, yeah, so now we can't fool kids anymore about anything, you know. I mean, they're going to find out all the stuff that we're trying to hide from them, and... And, and that includes death. I mean, I often say death is the new sex. Because we couldn't, you know, do sex education in schools. We couldn't talk about sex in the 50s and the early 60s. And now death is the new thing. So a big, uh, issue that's going on too is death education in high school, junior high, elementary school, that kids should be taught about death so that they don't grow up with fear and superstition. And there was a, I was involved in this dispute with the school recently. Uh, where there was a child in the classroom who was dying of brain cancer, and the teacher, who was not prepped or trained for this at all, told all the kids to pray that little Johnny would be healed. And, of course, he wasn't healed, and he died anyway, so can you imagine what it did to the cognition of those children? Because then the next thing, now they're seven years old, or however old they were, and they have, now they're having a spiritual crisis. like, well, we asked God to save him, and he died anyway. So now so we they're having So all, we didn't these,
2: pray right or
3: we didn't pray right. <laughs> or happened? there's no such thing as God. So so the whole the answer to that problem was and what I said is grief counselors need to be called into that schoolroom and set sit down with those children and with that teacher and have a couple of meetings where they talk to the kids about death and prepare them for the death of the student. And I got so much flack from people saying, oh, that's terrible. Death education shouldn't be taught to children. It's up to their families to teach them. And my answer is, yeah, but their families aren't teaching them. And then I thought, because oh, my God. Because their families
2: this... weren't taught.
3: Right. And, but this is like hearkening back to the sex education debates we used to have in schools, right? It was exactly the same argument. They should learn this at home. Yeah, but their parents aren't teaching them at home. You know, so, you
2: so know, death is bri- the new sex. Bringing- you're bringing to mind a guest I had a long time ago. Her oldest son died drown- in a drowning, and her youngest son was really struggling and uh they decided to um do a class meeting because he hadn't told anyone at school oh and so. and they did a class meeting uh you know, a very well-informed, well-done class meeting about what had happened and that, you know, he was very tender in his feelings. And, you know, they just really talked it through. And uh, the kids were so present and loving for him. Yeah. It com- it completely changed his experience. And I have to think it changed all of their experiences that, that uh, death could be talked about in that way. It changed them forever.
3: You know, they're going to grow up through their lives coping with death differently now because of that experience. That's exactly what needs to happen in schools.
2: Where it's a big, my grandson is visiting right now, and he has become aware of death because my mother died. And Mm -hmm. um, he's really trying to work it out. And so we're actually talking quite a bit with him about what it he wants to know what it is Good you know this, this morning he said am I dead and we said no you're not and he said why not
3: <laughs> you know how old is he he's four he's four so yeah. um yeah there's you know I just read a lot of stuff about stages of understanding death at certain ages in childhood And at four, at that age, they still think that death is reversible, that you can come back from death. And a lot of that is because they see that in cartoons and and things like that. And it isn't until about six in in that area where they start to really understand that you don't come back from death, at least not physically. And it really helps children to um, take them in a garden and show them how the life cycle of a plant and how you know it grows from a seed and then it blooms as a flower and then it makes another seed that goes into the ground and the first one dies and goes into the compost and becomes something else. I taught my son about that stuff because we had a huge garden when he was little and I really think that that helped him um, Absolutely. face death himself. And,
2: uh, you know, my, my youngest kid was two and a half when my wife died. She's now 22, and um, we we explained death to her very concretely, and she never once – she continued to have a very strong relationship with her after death and talked about it and everything, but she never once uh, had a question that she had died and what death was. So I think it's also that we don't talk about it. You know, well, and so we also only... we don't talk about it
3: correctly with children. We use euphemisms and platitudes, and we need to use really clear language. We need to say when a living thing, like a person or an animal, when their body doesn't work anymore, when it's broken and they can't breathe and their heart doesn't beat, that means they're dead. I mean, you have to be that literal.
2: Right. We even—I've mentioned this on the show before. We borrowed a stethoscope for that conversation. Perfect. Yeah, uh, yeah. Great. I think I think kids need the straight answer as much as adults do. <laughs> you know, we we need we need really direct conversations exactly, about what exactly it is, what is and isn't. Exactly. Sex education.
3: It's just—it's such an interesting. You know, phenomenon right now is that, you know, death education is replacing sex education as the taboo subject for children.
2: Yes. You know, I'd like to read one more little passage from your book as we're getting ready to end today. Uh, That kind of sums things up in my mind. With every turn of the kaleidoscope our rigid beliefs. Established traditions and secure settings are taken up irreparably, shaken up irreparably. This shakeup is at the core of every traumatic event and it results in a loss of faith and a loss of our sense of safety, order and continuity in life. When we no longer have that safe place to reside, we are exposed to the elements with no protective armor, no belief system, and no rules, morals, or formulas to protect us. It's a terrifying, dark, powerless place but it is also a place from which a new way of seeing the world can emerge. If we walk naked and trusting into that place, we are met with superb opportunities to experience the world in a new way. Our beliefs and realities come into question, but if we're willing to reevaluate those beliefs and realities, we can find a key to tremendous personal growth, both psychologically and spiritually. Uh, of course, that resonates so deeply with my own experience, and I think a lot of the people who listen to this show either have had that experience or are beginning to incorporate that possibility, and um, so it just seems uh, so important for us to keep talking about that as the potential outgrow- outgrowth of loss that doesn't get talked about. Exactly. Thank you for reading that.
3: I love it when people read excerpts from my books because I listen to that and I go, "Did I write that? Wow, that sounds really good when you hear somebody else read it." <laughs> so
2: how much of that. your book? How much of your book did you have a sense that you had some sort of chal- uh, channeled, and how much uh, of it? A hundred percent. All of my books. Well, then, in a way, <laughs> you did and you didn't, huh? <laughs> exactly. Well,
3: that's funny. You should say that. My son was very good with words as a young child, and I always figured he would grow up to be a writer because he used to do the craziest things with words. I'll give you one example. Once when he was about seven, I made him some toast, and it was kind of burnt. And, you know, we were late for school, and I just put the butter on it and gave it to him. And he said, I can't eat this toast. It's black. I'm black toast intolerant.
2: That's a great way to end for the day. Thank you, Terry, for being here. All right, thank you so much. Of course. Next week, I'll I'll welcome Diane Meyer, the Director of the Center to Advance Palliative Care. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
1: Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief.